1 Peter chapter 4, uh, verse 7. We're going to pick up. We were there last week, but we're going to pick up there just so we can kind of get the context of things. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7. And give me one second. I've got to make sure everything is working here. All right. All right, 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to read verse 7. I'm going to read all the way down. It says through verse 9, but let's read all the way down through verse 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks... As one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, and here's the key, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's Word for us this morning. Now last week, I ended my sermon abruptly. Remember that? I just stopped and said, we'll pick up. Uh, here next week. So last week, I spent the entire sermon trying to get the point across that when Peter says in verse 7 that the end of all things is at hand, what he's doing is he's trying to get his readers to understand the truth that our behavior as Christians, everything that happens in our life as Christians and the way that we live, the pattern of our life should be informed by the truth that Jesus could return very soon. And so he prefaces everything, uh, beginning in verse 7, all of what comes in this next paragraph, he prefaces by saying, the end of all things is at hand. The next big event, remember, and if you weren't here last week, let me just say it again for you, that what we're saying here is not that Peter thought it was next week or next month or next year necessarily. He could have believed that, and that would have been good to believe, just the same way we should believe that. But what he's saying is that, broadly speaking, the last or the next big event in the timeline of God's redemptive work and God's redemptive plan, the next thing to happen will be the return of Jesus. And so he says, the end of all things is at hand. And then that next word is so, so critical. The word, therefore. So he's saying that now everything that's coming after, everything I'm about to say, is linked to what I just said. The end of all things is at hand, therefore, and he tells us, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I I just want to, for a second, sort of finish out verse 7. He says, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And what he's doing here, those things, self-controlled and sober-minded, really are the same idea. And he's just really encouraging us to be mentally alert you know, to think clearly so that we can pray in an effective way, to see things clearly so that you can pray effectively. How many of you have ever been in the depths of a difficult time in your life, so difficult that you literally can't even think straight? Have you ever been there and you try to pray about it and you can't even pray about it? The good news is that, that the Bible tells us that in those moments, the Holy Spirit himself will intercede for us. That's Good, good news. But also, Peter's command is is good, that we should think clearly. We should clear our minds. We should be thinking in a way that allows us to pray in a way that's useful. 
And then he goes on in verse 8, and he grabs our attention by using these words. And this is where we're really going to begin to focus. He says, above all, above all. And so that, that statement there, that those two words really just mean that what, what's about to come is of first importance. He's not saying that it's the only thing. He's not saying that, uh, that it's elevated above every other thing in the Scriptures, but he's saying this is a thing that must be a priority for us in our Christian lives. This must be of first importance. And the one thing that he's pointing at as a matter of first importance for us is the subject of Christian love, our love for one another. Listen to what I'm about to say. Listen, you might want to write this down. It's really profound. Brothers and sisters, we're supposed to love each other. Right? Amen? I mean, come on. We're supposed to love each other. This is at the heartbeat of the Scriptures. This is at the heartbeat of what Jesus taught us. For instance, listen, in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, he says, A new commandment that I give, I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then listen to this. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Jesus says this is the defining mark of the Christian life, that you're supposed to love other Christians, that you're supposed to love each other. This is how other people, all people, will know if you're a genuine disciple of Jesus. Do you love other people? John says it. The Apostle John echoes the words of Jesus in 1 John chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. He says, whoever says he is of the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So again, he uses love for your brother, love for your Christian brother or sister as a mark, as a test of genuine faith. He goes on to say in chapter 3, verse 11 through 14, he says, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Where do you think he heard that? I mean, come on, he heard it from Jesus, right? We should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know, here you go, we know we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And then in verse 23, if you're taking notes, 1 John 3, 23, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? That this is the commandment that God has given us, that we should believe in the name of Jesus Christ and love one another just as He commanded us. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? I mean, that's really the, the, the big question, right? Do you genuinely love your brothers and sisters in Christ? After all, it's a test for us. And so Peter's going to give us this in verse 8 and, and following here. He's going to say that above all, as first priority, love one another. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to walk through some defining characteristics of Christian love. What, what can we say are defining characteristics from this text of Christian love? It's easy to say it, right? We all know that. It's not hard to say I love you, but it's a whole other thing to, for it to be genuine. What does it look like in the real world? So y'all ready? 
the defining characteristics of Christian love, according to Peter here in 1 Peter chapter 4. Number one, Christian love is persistent. Christian love is persistent. Back there in the booth. Let's go. Wake up. Christian love is persistent. Now, let me, let me give you some, uh, some synonyms for the word persistent, just so we make sure that we're on the, on the same page, just so we all get the, uh, get the heart of what I'm trying to get at here. Christian love is persistent, constant, continual, nonstop, uninterrupted, persevering. Christian love is persistent. Christian love, listen, Christian love doesn't come and go, right? Christian love doesn't, doesn't come and go. Let me, let me show you where I see this in the text itself, because I'm drawing all these things. I want you to know these aren't my ideas. They're right here in the text, and I want to draw your attention to them. And I'm getting that from the word there, if you look from the word earnestly. Above all, love one another earnestly. And that word earnestly in the original language is, is sort of an interesting word. It really means constantly straining forward. Here's an illustration I found is pretty interesting. A way that that word was used in ancient writings was it was used to describe the way a horse would run a race. How many of you ever watched a horse race? And don't act like you're so like holy. I would never watch a horse race. How many of you ever seen a horse race? How many of you love horse racing? Uh, I didn't say you had to love gambling. Just how many, I love horse racing. Right? We have one of the, the biggest horse races in the world right up the street in Baltimore every year at Pimlico, Preakness. And I love to watch horse races. Ever since I was a little kid, my, my grandfather took me to racetrack in Charlestown one time. And I don't know if he was gambling or not, but I remember standing on the rail and watching the horses run. Something about feeling them run by, you know, and seeing them run by. But to think about a horse race and this word literally being applied to the way a horse runs a race. Now, when a horse runs a race, it, it doesn't stop in the middle, right? It doesn't take a break, right? I mean, just imagine the horse is running, and he like leans up, looks at the jockey, the jockey nods his head, and they just step over to the side and like take a breather, you know? Give back. I, don't, I don't like these horses I'm racing with. I'm just going to give up. The idea is that he's keep straining forward at full speed. He doesn't give up, right? He doesn't stop. It's not, it's not stop and start. It's full bore, full speed ahead. It never gives up. Christian love is persistent like that. Listen, we can't stop loving one another. Listen again, I'll say that again. We can't stop loving one another. We can't take breaks from loving one another. Amen? We got to keep loving one another. Be persistent in our love for one another. One of my uh, heroes in ministry is a man named John Piper. You hear me refer to him a lot. You look him up on the internet if you want to find somebody who's just good to listen to. Uh, listen to, to him. He won't steer you wrong. But uh, I ran across something many, many, many years ago when I was new in ministry. I don't know why I heard him say it, but, uh, but I, I was listening to him preach, and I heard him say this, and I looked it up and got the quote this week. I'll never forget this and the advice that he gave to young pastors in ministry. And he talks about when he first became a pastor in his inner city church in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And he says this, listen. He says, I remember in those early days at Bethlehem, he was pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church. He says, in those early days at Bethlehem, I was new. I was 34 years old. 
And it was mainly older people in this downtown church. And some of them did not like me. Can you imagine that somebody wouldn't like the pastor? Who would have ever thought? They didn't like this talk. They didn't like my exposition. They didn't like the way I dressed. They didn't like the way I led the service. And on Sunday evenings, they'd sit in the back several rows with their arms crossed, daring me to get them to sing or in any other way be happy that I was there or that God was there for as far as I could tell. And I remember I did some things there that I've told many pastors to do. I looked them right in the eye and I said, you know, I love you. And I'm going to outrejoice you and outlast you. And he goes on to say, and I did. They're all dead. <laughs> and he said, and, and some of them became precious, very precious supporters. And then he goes on, he says, new pastors, remember this. Some of your present adversaries will someday be your strongest supporters. Just love them and outrejoice them. And I suppose when pastors call me and ask for advice about this or that, that's one of the most common pieces of counsel I give. Outrejoice them and outlove them. Now, let's not just apply that to pastors. Imagine what it would be like if all of God's people made a commitment to outlove everyone else. We'd just be outdoing each other in love. All the t- Imagine what it would be like if we just decided that, that, that I'm not going to give up on loving when times are difficult. I'm not going to give up on loving somebody just because they don't like me. I'm not going to give up on somebody just because they hurt me. I, I, Christian love doesn't run away. It doesn't disappear in difficult circumstances. Christian love is persistent. We love each other earnestly as a horse straining its muscles forward in the race. We don't give up. It's persistent. Number two. Secondly, what's another defining characteristic of a Christian love? Uh, Christian love is merciful. Merciful. Now look at verse eight again. Above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Listen to that last statement again. Love covers a multitude of sins. Now use the word merciful intentionally here. I almost used the word graceful. That Christian love is graceful. I almost did that, but then I thought that's not quite the right word. The, the really, the, the heart of this here is that that Christian love is merciful, that, that love covers a multitude of sins because mercy is really the, the, the act of showing compassion and kindness to someone even when it's within your rights to punish someone. That's what mercy is. Another way of just saying, another way of defining mercy is just to say that, that mercy is not giving someone what they deserve. That's what mercy is. And, and, and before we go any further, shouldn't we just stop and say, thank God for his mercy? I mean, just think of it. We thank him for his grace, for his unmerited favor, that he reached down from heaven, that before the foundations of the world, he planned our salvation in Christ Jesus. He executed it by sending his son. Jesus went to the cross willfully and paid the penalty for our sins. That's all grace, unmerited favor. But shouldn't we also sometimes just say, God, thank you for your mercy. 
Thank you that I don't get what I deserve from you. Because if I got what I deserve and you got what you deserve, every one of us should have just been snuffed out under the heavy hand of God's judgment. But in his great mercy, in his great love, he sent Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be reconciled to him. We don't deserve that, but he did it anyway. That's mercy. He could have judged us and he would have been just to do it. But in his great mercy, he saved us. Now, mercy is an attribute of God, but it's also an attribute of Christian love. We see it here. Christian love never says, listen to me. Christian love never says, well, you get what you deserve. It's not what Christian love says. Christian love says, no, you, you hurt me deeply, but I love you. And so let's reconcile. Because out of my love for you, We'll, we'll cover over those sins. Christian love never says, I can't forgive you. Amen? Christian love never says, I can't forgive you this time. Christian love says, I love you and I'll forgive you and forgive you and forgive you. Jesus, remember, uh, when Peter asked Jesus the famous question in Matthew 18, which, by the way, comes on the heels of Jesus telling the church or telling the, the disciples, rather, how we are to reconcile with one another. Do you remember this? If your brother or sister sins against you, what are you supposed to do, according to Jesus? Go to him one-on-one. This is, this is why if you ever come to me and say, Pastor so-and-so did such-and-such to me, and I, I need you to, to talk to them or, or tell me what to do, here's what I'm going to say to you. You need to go talk to them first. And if that doesn't work, Jesus went on to say, if that doesn't work, take, uh, take two or three with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses. And then he says, if that doesn't work, if they won't hear them, take it to the church. If they won't hear the church, then treat them as an unbeliever. And we see that played out in the book of 1 Corinthians. But he goes on on the heels of that, teaching about reconciliation between Christians. Peter comes to him and he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? What did Jesus say? Now, 70 times seven. Just, and, and by the way, the point here isn't the math, Right? Like, nobody, I hope you're not keeping a little scorecard, like 422, we're getting close, you know? The, the point is here, just keep forgiving. Because you love one another, keep forgiving. Because you love one another, keep showing kindness even when they don't deserve it. Because you love one another, have compassion even when wrath would be justified. Because you love each other, be merciful to one another. Christian love is merciful. And then he goes on to say here, and I really hope this comes across the right way. I struggled with the right word here. But the third thing that I see here in, in this statement is that Christian love is consistent. It's consistent. And the word consistent, you know what that means? It means always behaving or acting in the same way. It's consistent. We all know what that means. I want you to look at verse 9 with me. And I want to explain why I chose to use this word consistent for this last point. In verse 9, 
Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, most scholars agree, in fact, I didn't find any that disagreed this week, that in the context of Peter's writing, when he says that we're to show hospitality to one another, this has a, a broad application, but a very specific uh, meaning in that original context. Think about it this way. In that original context, as Peter writes to them, you know that, that the church is, is new. It's just sort of forming and expanding. And so there would have been people traveling around as, as missionaries or, or itinerant preachers or, or, church, or people like uh, Paul sending Timothy, for instance, with a letter to be delivered or Epaphras for a letter to be delivered to another church. So there would have been people traveling about and the idea here is that Christians would sometimes need to open up their homes to people who were traveling and, and open up their homes and feed them and give them a place to sleep and a place to bathe. They were to take in these Christian missionaries into their home who had nowhere else to stay and love them and care for them in difficult times. That's showing hospitality, just practical, uh, a practical way of showing hospitality. And I could have said, I think I could have said reasonably, uh, and made this, you know, I could have had four points this morning, but then it wouldn't have been a proper sermon. So I, I, had a, I could have said that Christian, Christian love is displayed in our actions, right? That would have applied to, that would have been right too. Isn't that right? Say you love me all you want. I'll, I'll know if you love me by the way you treat me. Plain and simple. Say you love me all you want. I'll, I'll know in your actions. Same for me. If I say I love you, then you... Judge me by my actions, not my words. So I could have said that, but instead, I, I chose to say that Christian love is consistent. And I did that based on the last two words in verse 9. Look at it. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Without grumbling. And the word grumbling here just carries the idea of complaining and Wayne Grudem gives us a great definition or a great, great way of understanding this when he said the term is used to refer, listen, hey, brothers and sisters, listen. This is one of these times, and I had to pray about this myself. But this is one of those times where we need to allow God's Word to speak and cut and prune and form us. The term is used to refer to repeated words of complaint, often spoken to others with the result of stirring up rebellion. Serial, grumbling, complaining. Now try to imagine it in the context here. Imagine a traveling missionary... The day's been long, and he's traveling, and he gets to the well. He goes to the well to, to have a drink of water, and he knows he's probably likely there, more likely there than any other place, perhaps to run into another Christian. And he's there, and sure enough, he strikes up a conversation with another guy, and, and they come to find out that they're both followers of Jesus. And the, uh, the man says, you know, why don't you come home? You, don't, you have anywhere to stay? He says, no, I have nowhere to stay, nowhere to lay my head. Why don't you come home? Uh, with me, and I'll take care of you. I'll, I'll feed you. I'll give you a place to sleep tonight. And he does, and they have a great night of fellowship. And the next morning, as the sun's coming up, th this man, this homeowner, gets up and he goes back to the well to draw water. And he gets there, and there's his buddy, you know, coming from his house. And they sit down, they start talking. He says, What's new in your life? 
And he says, well, the, the, you know, the sheep were awful last night. They kept me up on. And then the other says, what's new in your life? And he says, man, I've got this missionary. And I uh, brought him home last night. And man, he snores, man. And he ate like so much more food than I expected. And, uh, and honestly, he hasn't probably bathed in like a month. The guy stinks. He stuck my house up. And I just I hope he leaves. I hope he leaves today. I, I mean, I just can't wait to get this guy out of my house. And, and, and then he goes home and opens up the door, and there's the missionary sitting there. And he says, hey, brother, how was your sleep last night? Let me make you something to eat. Let me get you something to make sure you're comfortable. And the idea here is, is that you can't just say you love somebody one moment and then in the other moment go about grumbling about them. You understand? It's got to be consistent. That, that's not Christian love to go about grumbling. Listen, I can tell you firsthand. I can tell you firsthand. Uh, in ministry, I can't count how many times I've lost count. Thank God I've lost count. I can't tell you how many people I can think of over the past 17 years who've looked me in the eye at one point or another and said, I love you, Pastor. And then the next thing I know, I'm hearing, and I always hear, by the way, let it be let you be forewarned now. Somehow, by the Spirit of God, it always finds its way back. So many people will say, I love you, Pastor, and behind my back will bite and devour me and chew me to pieces. That's not Christian love. I mean, it wouldn't be if I said to Nick, Nick's my longest friend. I mean, I move around all my life, basically a nomad. I've known Nick since I don't even know when. I don't know. And uh, here we find ourselves together. I love Nick like a brother. I mean that. But I can't say, Nick, I love you, brother, and then go out to eat with one of you this afternoon and say, that Nick, man. <laughs> I can't stand that guy. He's always doing this or doing that, you know. Well, aren't you guys friends? Yeah, we're friends, but man, I mean, I'm just tired of Nick. You know? <laughs> I'm not. I love Nick. But you get the point, right? Christian love is consistent. Show kindness to one another. Be hospitable to one another. Not just when you're face to face. At all times. Stop biting and devouring one another. I don't know if that's happening or not. But if it is, cut it out. It doesn't please God. It doesn't build up the church. It doesn't do anything but tear people and things down. Christian love is consistent. Love one another. Now listen again. Listen again to the words of Jesus in John chapter 13, verse 35. And Gary, could you come on up, please? John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 